The year is uh, 33 AD, and you have uh, come a long distance to celebrate Passover this week, one of the great festivals. You've come with your family. You've come from perhaps one of the remote regions of the Roman Empire, so you're not that familiar with everything that happens in Jerusalem. Uh, You've just come to celebrate. And you hear through the grapevine when you get here that uh, the... uh, The master, the teacher is here who raised Lazarus from the dead. You just heard about that. It just happened a few days ago. And you'd never heard of anybody being raised from the dead. And so you're very curious like everyone else. Who is this guy? Where is he? When do we get to see him? And you were there perhaps when they laid the palm branches down and the cloaks and he uh, came into Jerusalem. And and then you were kind of surprised because he, uh, he started cleaning out the temple and started saying very hard things the week that you were here. And you're wondering, um, who is this guy? He raises somebody from the dead, and then he, he crafts this whip and goes in and, and drives out all of the money changers in the temple, and, and uh, it's new to you. But then you hear that there's going to be a crucifixion this weekend, and, and uh, you decide you want to hang around and see it. It's something that it doesn't happen every day, but it's something fun to watch. It's part of the first century. And so you go with your friends, and you kind of plan what it would be like this weekend to go be part of the bystanders who stand and watch what happens. Then you hear that this teacher, after he's done teaching, he disappears privately uh, Thursday evening into a room with his disciples. And you wish you could be a fly on the wall and wonder what he's saying, because he's such a man of mystery. And one moment he's raising somebody from the dead, and the next moment he's driving money changers out. And then there's another time when he's teaching about uh, what's going to happen, what's coming. If you had been a fly on the wall, you would have heard his very personal words to his disciples, where he talks about um, servanthood, and he washes their feet, and he teaches them that contrary to everything that you've experienced in culture, a good leader is one who serves their people in whatever capacity, in whatever that looks like. You would have also heard that uh, he's going away. He's going away. He's going to go prepare a place, a wonderful place, to come get his disciples. And you'd probably wonder if you were included in that. Would I be part of that? Would he come back for me? Because you don't really know who he is yet. But he talks about this place as if it's just a delightful place and you can't wait to get there. You would have heard him talking about... um, After he's gone, after he's gone, after he's gone, to remain in him, to live your life in his presence, and he would live his life with you. You would feel his presence regularly. You would never be alone. In fact, he talks about when he leaves, he's sending another comforter, someone to be with you forever. That's what you would have heard if you had been with him on Thursday night, but you weren't. You're with your friends. And um, the hour is late, and all of a sudden you hear a great commotion in the city, and you think, okay, what's going on? And so you and your friends come outside, and you want to hear what's happening, and you realize that uh, he was betrayed, betrayed by one of his very own. Isn't there any value in friendship and loyalty? One of his very own that was with him for all those years, those three years, has betrayed him. And there's a commotion in the garden right outside of Jerusalem. There's a commotion while they arrest him. Had somebody cut off uh, the ear of the high priest's servant? What? Wow. 
And we missed it. We didn't have news channels back then. So you're hearing through the grapevine. Then you find out that he was um, arraigned before Annas and Caiaphas, the two sharing the high priest's office behind closed doors. And you kind of wander your way over to the edge of part of the temple where he would have been in that room. You can't go in there, but if you had, you would have seen that they were already beginning to mock him, beat him, shame him, humiliate and embarrass him, dishonor him. Um, and that lasted throughout the night. It wasn't a pleasant experience. You just hear that through the grapevine. Then the next morning, you're still there, perhaps a little tired. The next morning, they drag him out and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of uh, Israel. The Sanhedrin, and they, they condemn him to death. To death? What on earth did he do? Didn't he just raise somebody from the dead just not even a week ago? And now we're condemning him to death? Well, sure, because he, he, uh, he tried to create an uprising. He wants to destroy the temple. What? This is God's house. We can't destroy the temple. He wants to destroy the temple. That's rebellion. That's sedition. That's, that's inappropriate. No wonder they want to crucify him and execute him. We couldn't have that. There's no way we could have that. This is our place where God dwells and we come to worship three times a year. And I came for this very, and you came for this very, this very festival to worship God at the temple. There's no way we're going to let him live. But you also know the Sanhedrin has no power. They have no power to execute him. So they hand him over to Pilate. And you get to be a part of that scene. You're part of the crowd and you're watching Pilate's deliberation. And Pilate says, I don't see anything wrong with this guy. Uh, but the Jewish leaders persist. And so in keeping with the tradition, you decide, well, maybe the way to appease the crowd is I'll offer a criminal that actually deserves to die. And, uh, and the whole crowd around you starts to, starts to yell and scream, no, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want this other person. No matter how bad he is, we want this person executed. Crucify Jesus. And you get caught up in that, and you begin to shout like everyone else, yeah, crucify him, crucify him. By now it's Friday morning. So at 9 a.m., probably a little bit before that, you watch as they strap the crossbeam to his shoulders. He's in a weakened condition by now, having bled quite a bit, having been beaten several times, probably scourged. And um, he's stumbling and falling, trying to carry this. And so one of the Roman guards picks a man that's stronger and says, here, you carry it. And they drag him out of the city and they drag him down to the place of the skull in the valley outside of Jerusalem. And you watch as they uh, lay him on the cross, on the ground, and drive the nails through here and here and through his feet. And just for a moment, you, you feel a little bit of pity. That must really hurt. Did he do anything really that bad? And they raised the cross up. It's probably what they would have done and dropped it into the ground. So he would have jarred from all that. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's a gruesome sight. And you wonder why bystanders like to come watch this. But you're there and you can't seem to take your eyes off of it. You can't get away from the scene and so you hang around and put on the cross at 9 a.m. 
3 p.m., you want to hurry up because of Passover because you don't want to miss the sacrifice of the lambs. There are lambs in the temple at 3 p.m. At 3 p.m., he dies. He dies. You're there to hear him say, Father, forgive them. Then you see him look at his mother and says, Behold your son. Then you hear him say, I'm thirsty, and they take a hyssop branch and put a sponge on it and dip it in the sour wine and give it to him to drink. You hear him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may wonder at that time, Wow, I, I feel like God has forsaken me from time to time. I can relate to this guy a little bit. You hear him say, It is finished. Perhaps he has a a look of satisfaction on his eyes. Then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And at 3 p.m. he dies. And then you go to your home because it is Passover and it's Sabbath. And you rest. And you enjoy your family. And you enjoy worshiping God. And you begin to wonder, was was there anything behind this? What happened? Who was this person? What was that all about? It's not like the normal, the normal crucifixion. It's not like the normal execution that we see. What's, what's that all about? And then you wake up Sunday morning and there's a hustle and a bustle and a commotion winding its way through the city and you come out. What, 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 what happened? What happened? The grave is uh, empty. The tomb, the stone has been rolled away and he's not there. What do you mean he's not there? Did somebody steal his body? No, no, he, he rose from the dead. People have seen him. What do you mean he rose from the dead? And you're trying to make sense of all of it. You didn't have a New Testament to explain it. It hadn't been written yet. You're just scratching your head trying to make sense of all of it. And then you hear, surprise, surprise, you hear the disciples begin to talk about what happened. That final weekend, behind closed doors, when you didn't get to be there and participate. Thursday evening, and when he talked to them, you begin to hear the story, but you learn something very interesting, something you didn't know. You learn that they have different stories. Matthew tells a different story, and Luke, later on, Luke, he wasn't there at that time, but, but Matthew tells a different story. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than what happened in John, and John tells the story very differently. And so you're intrigued by that. Because it doesn't make sense to you. Because the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story is that Jesus ate the Passover dinner with the disciples on Thursday night. I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Matthew and Mark call that the day of preparation. And here's why. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Then they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles, they reclined at the table. And he said, I have eagerly waited for this very moment. 
I have eagerly waited to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So when, you, I, when we hear Matthew explain the story, Jesus has Passover dinner, Passover supper with the disciples on Thursday before he's executed. But then you heard John tell a very different story. John chapter 19. Pilate had just asked him a question and Jesus answered it. When Pilate heard this, verse 13, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which is in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. This is Friday morning, and Jesus is about to be crucified. But John says it was a day of Passover. It's the day of the Passover. Hmm. Then a little bit later in chapter 19, in verse 31, Now it was the day of preparation. Jesus had just said, it is finished, verse 30. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because it's Passover. It's a day of preparation for the Passover. But Jesus is now dead. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So when Matthew's telling the story out on the streets, he's telling the story of having celebrating Passover with Jesus Thursday night. But when John tells the story, he tells the story of they wanted to take his body off the cross so they could celebrate Passover. And you're from a remote part of the world, and you had no idea that there might be two ways of celebrating Passover. And that kind of interests you. Well, there is a solution to this problem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the calendar system used by the Galileans. The Galileans had a different calendaring system than the Judeans. In Galilee, in the region that sacrificed that, Passover was from sunrise on Thursday to sunrise on Friday. Starts at sunrise to sunrise. The Passover lamb was slain on Thursday between 3 and 5, and the Passover supper was celebrated on Thursday night. And by the way, you could, you could use whichever calendar system you desired. Either one was acceptable. John, on the other hand, in most of Jerusalem, they used the Judean calendar. And in the Judean calendar, Passover was from sunset on Thursday rather than sunrise to sunset on Friday. So they overlapped that evening. And under this particular calendar, the Passover lamb was slain on Friday between 3 and 5 p.m. and the Passover supper was celebrated on Friday night. So the Galileans celebrated Passover Thursday night and the Judeans celebrated Passover Friday night. You wonder why I'm telling you this detail. Because in this timing difference, I believe, unlocks the true meaning of Easter. If we can get to that.
and make sense of that timing difference. But first, in order to make sense of this, we have to go back 2,000 years earlier. So the years now, 2,000 year, 2,000 B.C., give or take a few years, when you're a wandering nomad, uh, you have uh, had a God speak to you. Your normal method of worship was to go out and worship the stars. And then one day when you're out under the stars, you hear this voice, and this God speaks to you. You don't know much about this God. You don't know his name. You don't know any of those things. He just says, go. And when you hear a voice speaking to you out of the heavens, you probably go. He did. He said, where am I going? And this God said, "Uh, just take off. I'll show you when you get there. And he leads him far, far away to a certain land. And then he stops. And he said, you see this land? This land, I'm going to give it to you as a gift. Here's my promise to you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You are? Yeah, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. You're going to have a son. And so the years begin to roll by, and you get older, and you get older, and you get older, and you finally turn 100. There's no son. And your wife is 90, and there's no son. It's way past the time of childbearing. And then God surprises you and shows up again and said, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And so you have a son. And um, your honor has been restored in the presence of all of your family and your friends because your wife was barren. Surely the gods must have been angry with her. That wouldn't have happened. And all of a sudden, your wife at 90 years old gets pregnant and has a son. Who would have thought? That's exactly what she said. Who would have thought? So she gives birth to the son, and you decide. You're laughing, and all your friends are there, and they're laughing and celebrating. So you name your son. He laughs. Isaac. It means he laughs. He laughs. That's who's laughing. He laughs. And you recognize this God that you serve is laughing in joy with you. So then the years roll by, maybe 15, 16, 17 years later, this God reappears to you again and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and kill him. Why didn't Abraham jump up and down and scream? Why didn't he say, God, you promised? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Did you hear it? We will worship and then we will come back to you. We. There's only two of them. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac tied the wood on his back, 
himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on. So now they're climbing this mountain, Mount Moriah. This tells us that Isaac was probably at least a young teenager, perhaps a mature teenager, to carry the firewood up there. So by now, if he's 16, 17, Abraham's 116 or 17. So Abraham is kind of, I got the wood, and I see the fire and the knife. So he says, uh, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham, I think with a twinkle in his eye, doesn't say that, but I believe based on Hebrews 11, with a twinkle in his eye, he said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so uh, there was no lamb, so he tied him on the cross. The fact that Isaac would have been 16, 17, or 18, he could have easily overpowered his father. The fact that he didn't says something about his trust in his father. He willingly allowed himself to be placed on the altar. Romans 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Climb on the altar. Abraham gets ready to kill him, and you know the story. God stops him. This introduces into Jewish theology the question, where is the lamb? The lamb became very important in Jewish thinking from that time on. The lamb became part of their whole history. And God intended it that way. Because listen, when I get many, many, many years later to Exodus 12, this is at the end of all the plagues when uh, the, just before the Exodus, God has destroyed the gods of Egypt. And uh, this is the final night. The, the Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to you the first month. Your calendar starts over again right here because of what I'm about to do. Redemptive history is about to be made. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day, now remember this so that you can do the math with me, on the 10th day, of the, of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Now, offering lambs for sacrifices is part of the ritual back then. But we're beginning to get a whole different grasp because just like you were there in Jerusalem and you saw what happened from a human perspective, now I want you to see what happens from God's perspective. It's a very different story. The animals you choose must be a year-old male without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So if they put it on the 10th day in their home, and they lived with it, and it's one year old, and then they sacrificed it on the 14th day, how long did they have it? They're on their fourth day, aren't they? This little, little tiny lamb, this baby lamb is with them in their home. And then he says, sacrifice it. All the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 22 tells us that they used hyssop. They were to use a special plant, dip it in the blood, and wipe it on the doorpost. We have a hint. And John, who tells a different story than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he used hyssop to lift up the sponge. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. This is how you are to eat it. 
with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff eaten in your hand. I mean, your staff is in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Lord passed over the nation of Israel that night and made redemptive history. And all of a sudden, the lamb, which they offer as a sacrifice, takes on a whole different meaning. The lamb in Jewish history now became the Passover lamb. Jesus is turning their gaze from a simple sacrifice, and he's beginning to point them toward the future, toward a sacrifice that is coming. Many years later, Isaiah, his great prophecy, which we've read many times, Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. I mean, why else would he be hung on a cross? Stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own selfish way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And here it is. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silenced, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53 now connects this lamb, this Passover lamb, this suffering lamb, with the future Messiah. The future Messiah. So how does this question, where is the lamb, get answered? It gets answered in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The question asked by Isaac 2,000 years earlier gets answered right here. Below the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know what else? Second Chronicles tells us that uh, Moriah, Mount Moriah, was the mountain on which Solomon built the temple of the one true living God. That's Jerusalem. So all those years, 2,000 years before, there was no Jerusalem there. He directs Abraham to go and sacrifice his son right there on the mount that would later become the temple. I believe that. So John the Baptist is right here in the region of Moriah near the same spot saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now all of a sudden we can solve the mystery of the Passover and the calendars. Jesus ate the Passover supper with his disciples on Thursday evening, and then he became the Passover lamb on Friday. 
Because at 3 p.m., that's when the rabbis and the teachers took the lamb in the temple, the ceremonial lamb, and sacrificed it to honor Passover. And we're told that uh, Jesus died at 3 p.m. So while you're standing out there watching, trying to make sense of him dying on the cross, in the temple, they're performing the great festival act of celebrating the Passover lamb when the true Passover lamb is hanging right there before you. So Jesus ate Passover supper with his disciples on Thursday and it became our Passover lamb on Friday. Do you get it? Is Jesus your Passover lamb? The last part of the mystery, why would Abraham sacrifice his son when that doesn't uh, make any sense to us in our world today? I don't think it's a surprise that God asked him to sacrifice his son. I think that was in keeping with, with the world culture at that time. God had not yet said, don't sacrifice children. That was a common practice. The only difference is that when other people sacrificed their sons, they never came back to life. I think Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, got it. And he said to his friends and neighbors, just you watch. I'm going to sacrifice my son, and God's going to bring him back to life. Because he promised he would be the only son who came back to life. The only son. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham, by faith, offered up his son and that he believed that God would raise him from the dead and, in effect, he had him delivered back from the dead. It wasn't the act of sacrifice that was the test of faith for Abraham. It was the belief that God would raise him from the dead because Abraham hadn't yet been told you shouldn't sacrifice sons, and that's what... That's what everyone did. So when Jesus rose from the grave, and this is what Easter is all about. He became our Passover lamb on Friday. But how in the world would we know that? Thousands and thousands, millions and millions of lambs have been sacrificed. In other countries, thousands and thousands, maybe millions of children have been sacrificed. Not one had ever been raised from the dead. So we sacrificed our children or our lambs, depending if you're in, Jews, in Judea, Israel or not, and we believed that God was appeased by that, but how would we ever know? They could never come back and tell us. Right? Until Easter. When God's true son was raised from the dead, and he said, God is pleased. We had now had proof for the first time in history that the one true living God was pleased. Resurrection Sunday is the most monumental day in Christian theology because we have proof that God raised his son from the dead. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Father, thank you for, uh, for raising your son from the dead and for helping us to see that, to experience it, Lord, to, to see the truth behind it that you truly are pleased. Thank you for giving us that evidence on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, when there's, he's no longer in the grave. And we can shout from the rooftops and we can smile and laugh and say, and cry, he is risen. Thank you for raising him from the dead because we now believe you will raise us from the dead as well. Because he do, does represent this new creation and so do we. Thank you, Lord. And we pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.